Well, welcome this morning. It's good to see you. If you have your Bibles, please take them and go over to Psalm 6 as we continue our series on certain truth for uncertain times. There have been many times in my uh, Christian walk that I have read Psalm 6, but I have never studied Psalm 6 with the depth that I have done for this particular message that I want to share with you, and I am profoundly affected by what Psalm 6 has. And in fact, this is going to be a new tool in my toolbox in ministry on a regular basis because it deals with an issue that is critical for every Christian. And that's the reason why we've entitled this Seeking Relief from God's Severe Chastisement. And when I use the word chastisement, that's carefully selected because um, sometimes the way in which we use different English words, especially in relationship to punishment and corrective discipline, sometimes we use them interchangeably. But from a theological and from a biblical standpoint, they're not the same thing. In fact, let me assert right from the very beginning that God does not punish his people. All right? Nowhere in the Bible is that ever the case. God does not punish his people because punishment implies an, a payment for sin. And Jesus Christ has already supplied the entire payment for sin. He does not punish his people. But there is a divinely designed corrective discipline that God uses. That's different. We're not paying for sins at this particular point, but God is doing that for the purpose of our holiness, our walk with Him, that we might be more Christ-like. So there is a radical difference between us enduring punishment and God taking us through corrective discipline. Now don't fool yourself. The Lord will discipline His rebellious children because He is a loving Father. Take a look at Psalm 6 as we read here. David is writing and he says, O Yahweh, do not reprove me in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are dismayed and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Yahweh, how long? Return, O Yahweh, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness, for there is no remembrance of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all of my adversaries. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will 
suddenly be ashamed. The Lord will discipline his rebellious children. Don't ever assume that he won't. And in fact, as we talk about that, I want you to take your Bible and go over to Hebrews chapter 12. Because the author of Hebrews here, in chapter 12, picks up on this very thing in verse 3. Or excuse me, let's begin in verse 5. We'll pick up on this in verse 5. And he says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us, speaking of earthly fathers, for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, speaking of God the Father, disciplines us for our own benefit so that we may share his holiness. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God makes it very, very clear that he will take his own children through corrective discipline. He will do that. It's like a loving and caring father that the Lord will bring trials into your life to promote greater holiness. And in fact, he says that in verse 10. He says, it's not for the purpose of you paying for your sin, because why? Jesus Christ has already paid for your sin. He makes that very clear in the argument of Hebrews back in Hebrews chapter 10. Christ has already paid for your sins. You're not paying anything in addition to your sins. If you were, then Christ's death on the cross was somehow insufficient for you and fell short of the payment you needed. And we are all in trouble if that's the case. And we are deserving of hell. But instead... He will actively pursue corrective discipline, not for the purpose of payment, but for the purpose of divine correction, for the purpose of holiness, for the purpose of Christ-likeness in your life. Becoming Christ-like is not a matter of curling up in your favorite sofa with a hot mug of your favorite latte reading two chapters of Hebrews on a cold morning, that's not sanctification and growth. You're way too comfortable to change. Serious changes towards godliness does not happen when you're coasting through life, everything's going your way. Real changes come at a depth level when you're disturbed, upset, irritated, anxious, and totally unsettled on the inside. 
The best spiritual growth happens when you're broken and you're hurting. It happens when your life is hard and you're forced to make difficult decisions that you never thought you would ever have to make. So how are you going to respond to those? So let's go back to Proverbs 6, or excuse me, Psalm 6. Let's go back to Psalm 6. The Apostle Paul does indicate that practicing self-control and self-discipline in our life can be profitable in order for you to walk holy. I mean, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, he writes to young Timothy, but refuse godless myths fit only for old women. On the other hand, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. So there is a certain amount of growth and holiness through intentional discipline that we put upon ourselves. However, self-discipline, think about this for a moment, assumes you already know areas of your life that you need to change, and you begin to practice personal self-control to change those particular areas. But the problem with self-discipline is that self-discipline assumes a false narrative. And that is, self-discipline oftentimes assumes that we know everything in our life that we need to change. That's a false narrative. We don't know that. We don't know. You can practice self-discipline on areas that you know you must change, but what about the areas that God sees that are not a part of your consideration because he sees the inner man, right? He sees what's going on. Later on in Psalm chapter 19 and verse 12, we'll eventually get there probably in the next year. But in Psalm 19, David cries out to Yahweh, who can discern his errors, acquit me of hidden faults. So David there is acknowledging the fact that there are things that we do in our own life that are sinful, and we don't even realize that they're sinful. You see, Scripture highlights really two broad areas of sin. Two broad areas of sin. And this is critical for you to understand. These two broad areas, um, the first one is in a sense, unknown sin, hidden faults, unseen transgressions, unintentional sins that you commit. They are the sins that you do and you do not even realize that you're doing them. Moses speaks of these sins in Psalm 90 and verse 89. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Now, you cannot practice self-discipline on these sins because, you know what? You're completely ignorant of those sins. You don't have any idea what's going on. So God has to step in and bring his chastisement. That's the first type of sin. The second type of sin that Scripture talks about is deliberate, willful, high-handed sin is the way sometimes it's referred to in the Old Testament. It's really terminology that's used of a person who's traitorous. A traitor commits high-handed acts of treachery. That's what a traitor does. 
These are the sins that you commit fully knowing that they're wrong, but you do them anyhow. That constitutes deliberate rebellion against the Lord. And David speaks of these sins also in Psalm 19, verse 13, when he says, Also keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I will be acquitted of great transgression. Now, what kind of sins are this? This is what we call very deliberate, willful, intentional sins. They're open rebellion against the Lord. These are the sins that tend to master and rule your life because you tend to believe that the reward is greater than the consequences. Now, God lays this out very clearly. So take your Bible for a moment, put a marker here in Psalm 6, and let's go back to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15. And there we have a very deliberate exposition, if you will, of these intentional and unintentional sins. Beginning in verse 22. Verse 22 speaks of unintentional sins, sins that we do that we don't even realize that we're doing. He says, but when you unintentionally fail and do not observe all the commandments which Yahweh has spoken to Moses, even all that Yahweh has committed, uh, commanded you by the hand of Moses from the day when Moses commanded or when Yahweh commanded and onward throughout your generations, then it will be if it is done unintentionally, hidden from the sight of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to Yahweh with its grain offerings and its drink offerings, according to the legal judgment and one male goat for a sin offering. Now stop there for a moment. You understand, under the Old Testament, before Christ's ultimate and all-sufficient sacrifice was given, these individual animal sacrifices had to be made, and they were made for the purpose of unintentional sins. Things that people did and they didn't realize that they were doing them. Re rebellion against God. Now remember, most people in those days did not read, they did not write, so they had to, um, in a sense, their knowledge of what God had said had to come from public officials who did read and write, like Moses. And uh, God, Moses would communicate these things to him, but people were very for forgetful. They wouldn't remember things. Sometimes some people would miss meetings. Sometimes, like you, miss church. All right, and they'll and they would miss significant areas of their life where they need to be warned about those particular sins. And so they would do these things unintentionally. And he talks about these unintentional sins all the way down through verse twenty-nine. But then we pick up in verse thirty. And in verse 30, he changes. In verse 30, he talks about those very willful, presumptuous sins, high-handed sins. Verse 30 says, but the person who does anything with a high hand, there you go, that's intentional, high-handed, deliberate sins, whether he is a native or a sojourner, that one is blaspheming Yahweh. And that person shall be cut off from among the people because he has despised the word of Yahweh and he has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. 
His guilt will be upon him. In other words, that kind of a person needs to be removed from the congregation, which is, this is the early seeds of church discipline here. This is the early seeds of church discipline in the Old Testament. This is ultimately where church discipline comes from. Church discipline comes from the Old Testament practice of removing a person out of the congregation who willfully and deliberately sins. So, this is very high-handed sin. This is very intentional sin. It's exactly what David speaks to in Psalm 19 and verse 13 that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Now, with both types of sins, both unintentional and intentional sins, with both types of sins, there will be consequences if you're a child of God for both your unintentional and your intentional sins. Why? Because the Lord chastises those he loves. Hmm. We saw that in Hebrews 12, right? If you really are not going through chastisement, he says to the people, the Jewish Christians there, then you have good reason to question your Christianity. You have good reason to question whether or not you're a legitimate son. We know that such disciplinary action is not punishment because Jesus Christ has already borne all the punishment for your sin on the cross. You cannot add any payment to what Christ has already done because that would mean that Jesus Christ did not pay for all your sins. That's Roman Catholic thinking, saying the rosary, paying penance, adding your self-denial by observing Lent, praying to Mary, all of that is kind of to compensate for what Jesus Christ fell short of. But we don't believe that at all. Christ didn't fall short of anything. He paid for our sins completely to the very end. Christ has already paid the entire punishment for all of our sins, once for all on the cross. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. L listen to what the argument of Hebrews is. By this will, that is, the will of God, the Father. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hear that? Once for all. Later on, in verse 12, Hebrews 10, 12, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins, for all time, for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, to sit down at the right hand of God means all the work of offering sacrifice for sin or what we would call paying penance has already been taken care of. There's no, you're, you're resting, you're sitting down. That's one of the reasons why there were, there were no chairs in the Old Testament tabernacle, nor was there any chairs in the, in the temple because they were constantly offering sacrifices all the time. There was no time for the priest to sit down because there were constant sins going on. But in God's heavenly tabernacle, in His holy temple, there are seats and Jesus is sitting in them. Because the work has already been done. Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering, he is perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. So when the Lord disciplines and corrects his children, they're not paying for their sins. 
They're being trained to be more holy and Christ-like. J.B. Lightfoot, in his commentary on the book of Philippians, quotes Seneca, a Stoic philosopher. Some believe that Seneca actually became a genuine Christian later in his life. But this, this all occurred during the first century when Emperor Nero was severely persecuting Christians. And Lightfoot observes this, quoting him, In almost apostolic language, Seneca describes the trials and the sufferings of good men as the chastisements of a wise and beneficent parent. God has a fatherly mind towards good men and loves them stoutly, and saith he, let them be harassed with toils, with pains, with losses, that they may gather true strength, those therefore whom God approves, whom he loves, them he hardens, he chastens, he disciplines. Hence, the sweet uses of adversity. Find in him an eloquent exponent. Nothing, he says, quoting his friend Demetrius, seems to me more happy, more unhappy. Uh, or... I could uh, read it like, nothing he says, quoting his friend Demetrius, seems to me more unhappy than the man with no adversity has ever befallen. The life free from care and from all buffetings of fortune is a dead sea. Hence, too, it follows that resignation under adversity becomes a plain duty. It is best to endure what you cannot mend, and without murmuring to attend upon God, by whose ordering all things come to pass, he is a bad soldier who follows his captain complaining. End of quote. So, that really, believe it or not, brings us to Psalm 6. So let's take a look at the beginning of Psalm 6. And you'll notice the subtitle of this psalm, To the Choir Director, which means really chief musician, with stringed instruments according to the shemeth, which was an eight-stringed lyre or lute. Um, a psalm of David. So this was a psalm of David that was set to music and played by chief musicians in the courts of the king for worship. And there are three parts of this psalm that are important for you to consider. David is, first of all, begging for relief from chastisement. That's verses 1 through 5. Secondly, David is broken by the reality of that chastisement. That's verses 6 and 7. And then thirdly, in verses 8 through 10, David is beloved by the Redeemer in that chastisement. So the development of this psalm quickly moves from despair to delight there is no man who is more content and delighted with his life than a man who has benefited from the discipline of the Lord. If you are not disciplined by the Lord, then as Seneca would say, you are nothing but a dead sea. You're a dead sea. What do you do when you know that your suffering is a result of the Lord's correctness in your life? What do you do? You learn to pray and obey. But is it proper to pray that the Lord is merciful to you and turn his anger away during his chastisement? 
That is the real question, isn't it? Is it proper to pray that? The answer here is absolutely yes. David does this in this psalm. He pleads for relief from the hardship that Yahweh has deliberately brought down upon him. You can see David begging for relief in verses 1 through 5. So let's take a look at this if we can. David begs for relief here in verses 1 through 5. And the first part of this is the prayer for relief. Spurgeon has said this, No emperor has not Christ, who has not Christ, is half as rich as he that hath Christ and is a beggar. Jonathan Edwards says, They who truly come to God for mercy come as beggars, not as creditors. They come for mere mercy, for sovereign grace, and not for anything that is due. And this is David's approach to God in Psalm 6. David has sinned. We do not know what the specific sin that he's referring to, but we do know that there was plenty of sin in David's life from the record of his life. I mean, he practiced polygamy, which the kings of Israel were never supposed to practice. He committed adultery. He participated in a murderous plot. He was a poor father. He lied. He deceived people. He pretended to be somebody he was not. And those are just some of the sins that we know about. We don't even know David's secret sins or his unintentional sins. We don't even know that. At some point, David realized that the hardships of life that he was presently experiencing were due directly to the Lord's correction. His conscience, in a sense, throbbed with the guilt of his sin. And his adversity confirmed that the Lord had brought about this suffering. It was the Lord's hand that held the hammer of affliction that was driving the nails of correction deep into David's heart. John Bunyan said this, It is said that in some countries trees will grow, but will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. They bear no fruit because there is no winter. So when God is taking you through a winter time of life, a difficult time of life, the hardships of life, it is in order that you bear more fruit. So here, in verses 1 through 3, is the prayer that he has for relief. In verse 1 is the current plea for relief, begging Yahweh to not reprove him from his anger. And in making this plea, David is acknowledging that his suffering was God's design. And even in acknowledging this, it is his implied confession of sin. Even though David's life was blighted with repeated sin, he never lost the desire ultimately to confess his sin, strip himself naked before God, like a helpless sacrifice and throw himself at the Lord's feet and cry out for his mercy. That was not not wrong. The serious Christian is a lot like this, you understand. 
You don't ignore your sin. You don't posture yourself in self-righteous excuses. You possess this driving quality that makes things right with the Lord by prostrating yourself at the feet of the Lord, face to the ground, exposing your neck and back in a vulnerable position, and pleading for a reprieve from the Lord's anger. You know that you are deserving of His righteous anger, but you earnestly beg that He will relent. Thomas Watson Great Puritan, in his book, All Things for Good, says this, Sin is like a poison which corrupts the blood, infects the heart, and without a sovereign antidote brings death. Such is the venomous nature of sin. It is deadly and damning. Sin is the worse than hell, but yet God, by His mighty overruling power, makes sin in the issue turn to good of His people Hence, the golden saying of Augustine, God would never permit evil if he could not bring good out of evil. That's true. By making that negative petition, David now is not trying to get out of the consequences of his sin. He knows he deserves the unpleasant correction. However, he's asking that God will not release his fierce anger, there's the Hebrew components of the words that are used there, his fierce anger and wrath upon him. This is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for David. He knows that God has every right to take his life in awful anger. And we know this because of the words of his prayer in verse 5. When verse 5 says what it says, when he talks about the fact that um, for there is no remembrance of you in death in Sheol who will give you thanks. So we know this. Sometimes God's own people will sin to the point that he removes them off of the scene. Sometimes that happens, even today. For all of us under the new covenant, we're not under the old covenant as David was. But for all of us under the new covenant, that is still true. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, right? What happened? Because they lied, not just to men, but they lied to the Spirit, thinking somehow they could get away with it. What did God do? God took both of their lives. The Apostle Paul warned the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 29 and 30. Listen to what he says. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. In other words, God had brought judgment upon the Christians there at the Corinthian church. And many of them had passed away because of that judgment. David understands that God's fierce anger could bring about the same results in his life. The word that's used for anger is reinforced through poetic parallelism here with the word wrath in the second line of verse 1. Together they refer to a passionate rage, a deep justifiable anger. It is the type of anger that burns in the Lord when his child 
knows better, but goes ahead and commits a sin anyway. As we saw in Numbers 15, verses 30 and 31, and 1 Corinthians 11, 29 and 30, it means to cut off that person from the influence or even take their life. So David knew he was in danger of the Lord calling him home in a most unpleasant anger. And you must notice here that the anger of David's enemies did not concern him as much as the anger of Yahweh. The words reprove and rebuke and discipline or chasten are words used for corrective discipline measures taken in relationships. These words are never used in the context of eternal damnation or ultimate payment for sin. They are words in the Old Testament that meant to describe temporal chastisement. They are words of a father training or correcting his son. It's like Proverbs 19 and verse 18. It says discipline. It uses the same Hebrew word as Psalm 6 and verse 1. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not direct your soul to put him to death. Wow. And Proverbs 3 and verse 11 uses the same Hebrew word. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. That's the same, what's the similar word, uh, just a, a different um, parsing of that word, Hebrew word as uh, there in Psalm 6 and verse 1. First part of verse 1. Now, that brings us to verse 2. Verse 2 says, Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are dismayed. Here, David calls upon Yahweh to be gracious instead of angry and filled with fierce wrath. It's a plea that Yahweh show favor and be merciful. In almost every Old Testament use of this word for graciousness, it means favor that is undeserved. David cries out for this because he says he is pining away, meaning that he is sick, frail, and very weak, like a patient with some debilitating disease. Therefore, in the second line of verse 2, he cries out, Heal me! It's a metonymy which is a figure of speech substituting one thing for another. So from his description, David certainly needed healing. But this word can be used for spiritual as well as physical healing. And sometimes it was also used to speak of uplifting depressed or low spirits. So it's possible that David actually means both physically heal me, but at the same time, heal my spirit inside of me in the second line of verse two he says my bones are dismayed now we don't usually use that terminology in our expressions but it was a common one in ancient times it means that he is troubled in his bones so at the core of his very bodily structure in his bones everything is deeply disturbed both physically and spiritually there is distress in his innermost parts, he already is physically weak in condition, but he's also saying he's emotionally spent. Emotionally spent. 
Have you ever realized the depth of your difficulties, pain, and suffering is a direct result of your own personal sin, and you have awakened to the idea that this is really God's chastisement in your life? Sometimes physical hardship, emotional instability is so disturbing that it cuts deep into your soul. What do you do as a child of God? With a loving Heavenly Father, you can pray for relief, or at least that God does not take your life. This is the essence of David's prayer. He's begging like a thief would, I mean, like a beggar would beg. He's begging for relief. Verse 3. Verse 3 is a strong statement of lament. David is terrified. He has moved from crying for help to acknowledging his frailty, to being deeply disturbed in his soul and now being terrified. The words greatly dismayed means he is terrified. His, his questioning the Lord is not finished since he is terrified. In his terrified condition, he blurts out, How long? How long? The sentence is broken off because of the extreme stress and the frustration he is under. So when David was exhausted, when he was frail, when he was very weak, depressed, terrified, with controlling anxious thoughts, he turned to the Most High. Today's Christian turns to the medicine cabinet. Pop some anxiety medications down the antidepressants, and I'll feel better real quickly. But these are only temporary emotional painkillers, and once they've worn off, guess what? All the anxiousness floods back in. They do not get at the deep source of the problem. What makes it so difficult is that the Lord, for a time, remains silent to David, willing to let David languish in his pain and depression. Why? so that the correction does its thorough job. There's no instant relief. God is not a 24-hour pharmaceutical dispensary promising instant relief with his cosmic medication. He is a loving Father that will let the discipline do its comprehensive work on the inner man and get at the real source of the problem, that is, the heart's sinful rebellion. So now the question comes, what confidence does David have that Yahweh will hear this desperate plea? This brings us to verses 4 and 5, which basically states the premise for his seeking relief. Now the reasoning of verses 4 and 5 may actually surprise you. Verse 4 tells us that the whole premise of his cry for help is first based upon Yahweh's loving kindness. David pleads with the Lord to return, rescue his soul again. The idea behind return is that Yahweh apparently turned away from him in his sin. David no longer had Yahweh's approval upon his life, and that is what put him in such a desperate situation. The word rescue means to deliver him, it means to save him from ruin, destruction, or harm. If the Lord does not deliver him, he will be utterly ruined. He'll die. The second half of verse 4 picks up the same idea and develops it here. Save me. 
which is Old Testament terminology for both physical and spiritual salvation, all of which is stated in the imperative voice. So it is imperative that the Lord hears and answers his cry for immediate rescue. Now, I don't know about you, but as you consider this, you've got to understand that David's view of God is radically different than the average Christian's view of God today. Radically different. Because we have a tendency to think that he is the celestial grandfather sitting in a rocking chair up in heaven, and he only means compassionate things and nice things for his people. Well, certainly in the long run, God only intends good for us. No doubt about that. But will he take us through fiery trials? Absolutely. To the point where we may think we're going to die. He may take us to that. This is not Satan doing this. This is God doing this. He's the one. So this brings us to the first basis for David's confident appeal to Yahweh. Because of your loving kindness. The prepositional phrase here, because of, means for the sake of your loving kindness. Loving kindness is a strong covenant word. Any Old Testament saint would have instantly recognized it as the word as speaking of Yahweh's faithfulness and keeping his covenant promises to his children. It is a, uh, it is a word that it's unique and, and a special understanding of Yahweh's loving kindness is that is the first reason that David needs to be delivered. You can see reflections of this in Exodus 34, verses 7 and 8, Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9. This brings us to verse 5. Then in verse 5, he says this. He says, For there is no remembrance of you in death, in Sheol, who will give you thanks? This is the part that's surprising. Verse 5 brings us to the second reason for Yahweh to answer David's prayer. Because if David dies, he says, so will the praise and the worship on this earth that he will be able to give to Yahweh. Think about that for a moment. The righteous man knows well the fact that God answers prayers so that his people will proclaim his glory through public praise. You can see this with a man born blind in chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, because the disciples, as well as many, most of the Pharisees, believed that if a person was born with some kind of um, um, deformity, difficulty, the fact that he was born blind, then God must be judging the sin of the parents or the child before the child was born. And Jesus says, neither of these is true. This man was born blind for the purpose that God would receive glory. That God would receive glory. That's different. If David dies, David says, this giving you praise and glory will cease, at least on earth. If he is placed in the grave, that's what Sheol means, who will give you thanks? There will be no one to give thanks. So is it proper for the Christian to pray in such manner? 
Yes, absolutely. If you realize the Lord is the one who makes the ultimate decision, there are no guarantees that he will allow you to live on continually if you pray this way. But it is a very significant factor in your prayer for relief. David wanted to live on and continue to give public praise and glory to the Lord. This is a great reason to live. Such a reason is persuasive to a believer that is plagued with thoughts even of suicide or is close to giving up their will to live. If he is to live on, not for himself, then he is to live on for the praise and glory of the Lord. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 15, verses 7 and 8. Paul clearly says, For not one of us lives for himself, not one of us dies for himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. I cannot tell you how many times I have used those verses with people that are suicidal. All right? Why do we live? We live for the Lord. Why do we die? We die for the Lord. If we're a genuine Christian, we've confessed Christ as our Lord and the Savior. This is why we live. This is why we die. David understood this. So in verses 1 through 5, David is begging for relief from chastisement with two reasons, he says. Please, Lord, answer it. One, because of your loving kindness. But number two, the, the reason is because if you are to take my life at this particular point, I will cease to be able to give you praise. David is a seriously broken man. Seriously broken man, which brings us to number two. Broken by the reality of this chastisement. Like David, here in verses 6 and 7, Dave, or like Job, I should say, David believes he is close to death. In Job 17 and verse 1, Job says, Job expressed lack of will to live by saying, my spirit is broken, my days are extinguished, the grave is ready for me, end of quote. You know, I've talked to people like that. I've talked to people in that kind of situation who are so desperate. And they've, they've stated similar words. The experience of believing that your own death is imminent is unforgettable. Especially if it seems that your demise is premature. It touches you to the core. While a forbade, foreboding anguish overwhelms your emotions, Yahweh's corrective discipline upon David's life had such a deep and profound emotional impact on his life. The next two verses describe David's intense lament. They are evidence of his sorrow and regret over having done the sin which brought on the agony in the first place. Look at verse 6, because it talks about the pangs of chastisement. I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with tears. This is what God wants from His children when they have sinned against him. There, is, there needs to be brokenness. Your pride is broken. Your will is broken. Your spirit is broken. Your defiant resolve is broken. Now, there are a lot of people, when it comes to sin, that are sorrowful 
for their sin. Some of them are sorrowful that they got caught in their sin. But even those who are not just sorrowful for that, but they're just kind of sorrowful that they committed their sin to begin with, but they're not broken because of it. They're not broken. Why is this brokenness so important to the Lord? Because it is the ultimate evidence of genuine humility. It is the ultimate evidence of genuine humility, that brokenness. The more humbled you are, the more the Lord is glorified. The more humbled you are, the more the Lord is glorified. James talks about this in James chapter 4. If you want to take your Bible just for a moment, go over to James chapter 4. Notice what he says in verse 6. James chapter 4, we pick up in verse 6. But he gives a greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will re exalt you. David was such an accomplished warrior and king, he struggled with pride, and God resists the proud. This is what we need to do here in James 4, verses 6 through 10. This is what we need to do. Now let's go back to Psalm 6 and verse 6. David now expresses his weariness, and it is accompanied by involuntary weeping and anguish because of his distress. The word for weary here means to be worn out, tired, extreme fatigue. It can refer to physical or emotional exhaustion or both. Here it probably means both. The emotional exhaustion was especially taxing on David because Yahweh had been silent for such a long time. His prolonged silence was seen by David as part of the divine discipline. When it seems that God is distant in your life, there's probably no good reason. He, he with, has withdrawn his fatherly favor and communion is, is absent. All of that is deliberate. It's intentional. Even the child of God will be crushed under the pressure of the absence of the Lord's favor. David uses some strong hyperbolic me uh, language here to express the dark state of his grief. He says, every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with tears. This is due to the awful anxiety and internal distress that David is experiencing. He is describing nightly bouts of uncontrollable crying. Now this doesn't come from some kind of physiological disorder like a pseudobulbar effect, which can happen in people with brain injury or certain kind of neurological condition. That's not David's problem here. It is coming from a spiritual emotional assessment of his own desperate situation. He knows that the Lord could take his life if he wills, and David finds himself absolutely, totally helpless, incapable of getting purposely trapped, uh, getting out of this because he, he's trapped in his agony. 
causing incessant weeping. To him, it felt like his bed was soaked in tears. William Bradford, who was the governor of Plymouth Colony, appropriate for Thanksgiving week, right? Said this, Faint not, poor soul, in God's still trust, for not these things thou suffer must, for whom he loves he doth chastise, and then all tears wipes from their eyes. All tears. Now let's turn to verse 7, because now verse 7 is the perception of the chastisement. David now, if you look at verse 7 where he says, My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of my adversaries. David now takes the description of his agony one step further. The eye is a perfect measurement of intense grief. To the ancient Hebrew, the eye always represented a general condition of the person. Where the part represents the whole. Um, David's eye was representative to what was happening in his whole body. The fact that his eye kept pouring out incessant tears indicated that the whole body, his whole body was in anguish. Jesus even used the eye in a similar way in describing self-centeredness and greed. In Matthew 6, verses 22 and 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So the eye represented the condition of the entire body. You can see that later, later on, David talks about this in Psalm 31.10. David expresses a similar state of sorrow and grief. His whole body was affected. Modern medicine still today uses health, the health of the eye, to be an indication of the general health of the person. If your eye appears weak, it seems you have aged under stress. There's no vitality left in David's life because... He is so worn out. And to make matters worse, David's adversaries piled on to his suffering. You can see that at the end of verse 7, it, is be, um, it has become old because of my adversaries. They piled on. This was not uncommon in ancient times and still is true today. When Job experiences his grief and loss, his so-called friends verbally assaulted him with accusations of God's judgment upon him because they accused him falsely of having sinned, even though it was not true of, of Job. For David, it is true that he has sinned. His suffering was a direct result of Yahweh's displeasure and correction, but it appears like his adversaries have purposely piled on by rejoicing over this and ridiculing him, in a sense, they are relishing his demise. This only exasperated his suffering. To David, his own eye looked old, probably with puffy bags from his incessant crying. David's adversaries loathed him and sought to kick him when he was down and defenseless. But now we reach the turning point of this particular psalm where we begin to realize that the thirdly, David has, is beloved by the Redeemer in his chastisement. 
You can see this in verses 8 through 10. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. David was dismayed. He was crushed and terrified. But now he's saying his enemies will be. The Lord will listen to the cries of his children, even when they are being disciplined by him. As Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3, 31 through 33, for the Lord will not reject forever. If he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict from the heart or grieve the sons of man. There is a time where the Lord will withdraw his hand of affliction from his children. You can bank your hope on that. You understand, there's the promise of the believer in verses 8 and 9, the promise for the believer, where David addresses his oppressors directly to warn them that they are the ones who are now in mortal danger. The Lord has heard his cries for mercy and grace and has relented from his correction. The Lord has brought an end to his chastising His confession of sin has been heard and the Lord has forgiven him and turned his pleasure upon David. That is a lesson that David does not forget about the Lord's willingness to forgive. In fact, later on in Psalm 86 and verse 5, David writes, For you, Lord, are good and by nature forgiving and abundant and loving kindness to all who call upon you. And that little phrase, to all who call upon you, is a Hebraism that is synonymous with the idea of repentance. To call upon the Lord meant to repent. Our Lord is always ready to forgive His children when they confess and repent their sins. That's His nature. And the main reason that David warns his oppressors is because the Lord has turned back to David in a favorable way, but now has turned on his oppressors. The Lord has heard his weeping, a present perfect verb there. This is then reinforced and repeated in verse 9. And again, a second time, David says, the Lord has heard, perfect present verb again, his supplication, then takes a step further and says that Yahweh accepts and receives his prayer. It means that he is receiving and will continue to receive his prayer because this is a progressive, imperfect verb. Why? Because he has been fully repentant. Now, let's look at how David closes out this psalm in verse 10. The punishment for the oppressor. In verse 10, David confidently states that his oppressors will be put to shame. David's sin was against the Lord, not them. They had no right to inflict further ridicule upon him other than what the Lord had already done to correct David. Just as David had sinned and Yahweh had brought his corrective discipline upon him, his oppressors were sinning by rejoicing and contributing to his suffering. They relished to see his demise. Solomon, David's son, later writes in Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. He says, when your enemy falls, do not be glad. And when he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice. 
lest Yahweh see it, and it be evil in his eyes, and turn his anger away from him. This is what happens here in Psalm 6. The word will be ashamed demonstrates a sense of confusion, guilt, and overwhelming embarrassment when something turns out differently than expected. His enemies will be ashamed. It was a term offered to describe chaotic defeat. The second half of verse 10 concludes with the insistence that if they understood what David was saying, they would turn back, stop their harassment, relent from their harmful intentions. Why? Because Yahweh has taken up David's cause. If they do not, they will be destroyed quickly. Now listen, dear Christian. If you believe that out of loving correction, God brings hardship into your life, in other words, He cares for you enough to cause you pain to correct you, then He will also love you enough to protect you from evildoers and deal most severely with anyone who wants to pile on, who wants to bring harm. This is what David is saying. Yahweh's corrective actions in his life guarantees his protective actions in his life. His corrective actions guarantees his protective actions. Why? Because both actions come from God's love for him. That's why. Both actions come from that loving kindness. There's a story of a man who came upon two boys fighting in the park. He took one aside and began to spank him for his inappropriate behavior. An observing bystander came up to the man and asked him indignantly why he didn't go and do anything to the other boy. The man simply responded that this one was his own son and the other was not. That's why the Lord will spank you. If you are one of the Lord's children, you will be disciplined. If not, you may escape temporal chastisement for the Lord, but you will never, ever escape eternal judgment. Never. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Even when we are the people who have sinned and done evil in your sight, because you love us, you will take us through hardship and discipline. Because you want to see holiness in us. You want to see Christ-likeness in us. But the very fact, the very reason behind your active involvement in terms of corrective discipline in our life, is the same reason that you will turn around and be protective from our enemies who want to utterly annihilate us. You're that loving towards us. I pray, Father, that that actually will build our confidence to walk with you closely. And we will always be very careful to give you all the praise, the glory, the honor in our life publicly. 
while we still have breath to do so. And this is what David wanted so much. This we pray in our Lord's precious name. Amen.